Hello, everyone, and welcome to Conversations With on The Brandy Show. Today, we have a treat as we talk with syndicated radio show host, Michael Patrick Shields. Michael started his career in radio as a producer for Detroit radio icons Dick Burton and J.P. McCarthy. His journey to his current post as the host of the syndicated Michigan's Big Show with Michael Patrick Shields gave him a ringside seat to observe and participate in the golden era of radio in Detroit. Besides his incredible experiences during those years, he has become an author, a friend to presidents, a travel writer, a cigar aficionado, and he also ran with the Bulls in Pamplona. He has a fascinating story and a wonderful memory to discuss his amazing trip in a business we both love, in a community that has had its share of amazing media talent. Enjoy my conversation with Michael Patrick Shields. You know, you're the busiest guy in broadcasting, I think, Michael. Uh, you're traveling, you're doing a morning drive show. Do you ever have time to sit and take a breath? No, I'm afraid I'd run out of time in life. There's so much to do and so much to see, and uh, I'm excited by all of it, and I love uh, running into friends more than anything, and what a, what a cool thing it is to talk to you. Oh, it's a great thing to talk to you, and people who don't know your history, and that's where I want to go, is you actually started in the business as a producer for one of the iconic radio voices and personalities in Southeast Michigan, in Detroit, in the nation for that matter, and J.P. McCarthy. How did that come about as a young man getting, I want to tell you, top gun status at WJR with J.P. McCarthy? <laughs> yeah, it didn't really make sense. It started by listening to the radio and uh, as a kid, you know, and I suppose like a lot of people, it started with uh, baseball and Ernie Harwell and Bob Eufer listening to the Michigan games and then sort of wandering into other parts of of radio. I mean, there were so many stars in Detroit. And, you know, when you're a kid, you like the funny ones and sports probably led me to JP. And I, yeah, I remember very clearly on Michigan, Ohio state week, I would skip school on a Friday before the game because JP McCarthy did, a, you know, audio tailgate show that day. And he had Woody and he had Bo and he had Don Canham and he had Bob Eufer and, as a kid, you know, you had to pretend you had a stomachache to stay home and listen all the way to 10 o'clock. And so I was fascinated by radio and Dick Purton and Jeff and Jer were on at the time and they were funny. And if I stayed up too late, Larry King had an overnight radio show that was one of the most bizarre things you could ever want to listen to, as you may recall, if you stayed up that late. And uh, it was eccentric, and, and Jay Roberts had night flight, and when you're a kid, you, you, you heard him, uh, you know, the pilot of an airplane taking off, and it was just all so exciting, and I never really knew, could you make a living in radio? I didn't know. I mean, it seemed like, it seemed like such a mystical thing, very, very mystical. And uh, so what I did is I, I had uh, a plan to be a football coach and a teacher, because guess who I was also, you know, adoring at the time was Bo Schembechler. Of course, of course. And I said, oh, that looks like fun. I want to do that. And I, you know, I admired my high school football coach and just in a Lloyd Carr and I ate it all up. And so luckily uh, I, I met Lloyd Carr by accident and I wasn't good enough to play on the team, but uh, he said I could come and be a student manager at Michigan. And I met him because I got in trouble in school and I was in the principal's office and he came recruiting and he wasn't recruiting me. He was recruiting some other players. And, and uh, he said, 
you know, is Sister Nancy here? Because it was Our Lady of Mount Carmel. And I said, no, she'll be back, though. And Lloyd Carr said, what are you doing here? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm serving detention. And the man sat down next to me and asked me what happened. He wanted to know all about it. And then he handed me a brochure for summer, uh, the summer football camp that Coach Schembechler ran. He said, I want you to come to this. So I did. And uh, I was besotted by football. And, and I was going to come there. And I was going to be a student manager. And to be honest, my grades weren't good enough. B wasn't enough to get into the U, as you well know. And so I redirected and I said, well, what can I do in the meantime? I guess I'll go into radio. And uh, there again, I had to skip school in order to make it happen because there were two guys who were very funny. They were called Jeff and Jer. Yep. Jeff Elliott, Jerry St. James. And uh, they were they were pretty funny. And I said, I'm going to ask them, you know, if, if you can really do this. So I waited till the very second they signed off. And I dialed on a rotary phone to their studio, figuring maybe they'd be cleaning up or whatever, you know. And and they answered the phone, so I was lucky. And I said, can I just have 30 seconds to ask you a couple questions about radio? I'm a high school kid. And they said, yeah, we'll answer your questions, but you got to come in here, watch the show, and then we'll talk to you after. <laughs> I was like, what? I was like the dog that caught the car. No Suddenly kidding. I'm going, yeah, I'm going to Disney World all of a sudden. Uh, right? What a great uh, opportunity. That was out of the blue. Yeah, and if I, I tell you what, if, I, if they hadn't answered or maybe they hadn't invited me in, it could be a completely different story. And so I went there and I wore a tie and they made me take the tie off and relax. And we had fun and they were encouraging. And so now, uh, to this day, every hour that I'm on the air hosting a show, the recorded voice that introduces me is Jerry St. James because I never want to forget that if they hadn't answered that phone and they hadn't encouraged me, I would not have been on radio. Isn't that amazing? I've got a a name like that, too, in my past. Dick Fabian, who used to work in Saginaw as the news director of Channel 25, he hired me. He took a chance. I didn't have any experience in the commercial radio or TV world, and he just said, "I I think you're good, and he hired me as sports director on a TV station in Saginaw, literally, Nine months after I played the Rose Bowl game in 1972, and uh, I, I will always remember Dick Fabian as, as long as I live. You mentioned an interesting name, Night Flight, Jay Roberts. Mm-hmm. To me, that is what radio is all about. It takes your mind, and it puts you in a different spot because you don't have pictures. You can take your mind, and your imagination takes you to a seat on that plane. And I loved Jay Roberts. When I worked the news, I'd drive home at midnight, one o'clock in the morning. And I always had Jay Roberts on and that plane would take off. And today we're going to Des Moines, Iowa. And it'll be two and a half hours to Des Moines. And while you're there, let's listen to the Bickersons, you know, and I just love that stuff. So Michael, I, I get it. I know exactly where you're coming from. I was the, the same guy growing up, but here's the question. Uh, from Jeff, how did you get to JP? Well, I went, I had a, a pit stop with Dick Curtin, who's now also in the radio hall of fame in between. Cause again, I kind of liked the funny radio and uh, I was at CMU working on the radio station there and I was home at winter break and I said, wow, wow. I'd like to work with Dick Curtin. I, was, uh, I wonder if he'll see me. So I did the same thing, but this time I went straight to his studio and it was, 
in between Christmas and New Year's or just after New Year's before I went back to CMU and it was a bitter cold seven degree below zero day. And so I figured I needed a gimmick. So I stopped at the grocery store, which Farmer Jack at the time, if you remember that. Sure do. And uh, yeah, and they had those uh, uh, microwave breakfasts that are frozen solid. So you get like frozen solid scrambled eggs and <laughs> sausage and whatever. Yep. And I bought the pack and then I went to a carryout restaurant and I got, I, I put all of that onto a plate as if it had come from a restaurant and packaged it in a bag and everything. And I wrote a note on the top that said, Mr. Purton, I brought you breakfast. I hope it isn't too cold by now. And I went into the lobby and I asked the lady to take it into him. And, uh, and I watched through the window and she took it into him while he was on the air. And he looked at the note and he opened the bag and he started laughing. His took us off because <laughs> it was, everything was frozen. And I thought, oh my God, I made the funny man laugh. And uh, he looked and she pointed out the window and he looked out at me and he held up one finger as if to say, you know, wait for a minute. Uh, so I waited an hour and a half till the show was over and uh, he came out and said a very quick hello. And then he sent Gene Taylor out who was his writer and producer. And, and he said, would you like to intern with us this summer? Wow. So I got an internship with Dick Burton and that gave me some credibility. And then, you know, you went to Saginaw to be a sports director when I made the move after the uh, extended internship, it turned out to be with Dick Burton and a, I went to WJR and I produced Weekend Overnights, uh, which was, you know, drunk talk, basically. You know, yeah. people, call, people calling in through the night. So I started at the bottom of the barrel over there. But to me, to go into the Golden Tower, the Fisher Building, uh, you know, after a Tiger game and be there all night, well, I was thrilled. Same experience with me when uh, I was first asked at one point to be on Joe's show in the morning. I called my mom and dad at home. I said, hey, I'm going to be on WJR. And uh, to me, that was like I had made it. I had arrived. Yeah, yeah. Do you and, you know, that the, the luck of the draw then because, you know, one Sunday overnight I was working and they came to me and said, <clears throat> JP's producer is sick. Can you stick around? And uh, me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for some reason he took a shine to me. And, uh, I never, I never really know why. And I ended up being his producer and he was very kind to me and sweet to me and sassy too, you know? And, uh, I tell you what, when you're 24 or whatever I was, and you're going to work for a legend like that, I, I told him right away, you get loyalty. And he says, well, I need your brain too. I said, yeah, you get that, but you get loyalty. And so it was, yes, Mr. President, yeah. no, I never, <laughs> he wanted to leave early. Sure, you can leave early. You know, you want to get a guest host for Focus so you can go play golf? You betcha. And that was the way I went about it. Well, the thing about it is, too, and I wonder, because I, when I was on WJR, whenever I went on, when I started doing the games with Frank, uh, it, was, it was like I, this was a gigantic privilege and honor for me to work for those three call letters. When did you realize when you started working for Joe, and you, of course, worked at JR, that the impact that this man and this this fourth hours of programming from 6 to 10 in the morning had. When did you realize this is a big, big deal in this community? Well, I, you know, because uh, it, it was obvious uh, because of the kind of people who would come on the program. And he was, 
you know, so as you know, significant, but he didn't behave like he was significant. That and was his, he, I think that was his greatest talent, that he was just another guy. And it was whenever you had a conversation with him, it was just having a conversation with somebody as opposed to an interview, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And he had a little bit of a sassy side, but the magic of it was in terms of the craft, like, you know, as a broadcaster yourself, you, I'm sure you have techniques that you use consciously or subconsciously, but I mean, we would start the theme song, uh, which was a four-minute piece of music, Have a Nice Day, at 6.15 or so. And he wasn't there yet. And I, I, was, I was, well, you know, I got used to it eventually. But when you think about it, that he left his home on Orchard Ridge Road over by Bloomfield Hills Country Club, drove down Telegraph Road, hit the lodge, went down into Grand Boulevard, pulled into the garage of the Fisher Building, walked to the elevators, went up 21 stories, through the lobby, into the studio. While the theme song was playing, he had a four-minute window to hit that. And he'd toss his coat on the chair, sit down, put his glasses on, put his headphones on, take a sip of coffee, push the button, and say, good morning, world, every day. And you're just watching this like it's some kind of magic trick. Like, wow, that is ball and cool. I it just, really I, was. What, I, what I say is that's just talent. <laughs> yeah. When you've got the ability to just walk in and do what he did, like that, you said, without, you know, really thinking about it and then do four hours, I'm telling you well, what, that's serious talent. I'll give you another example. You know, I'd, he'd have on the rack there in front of him the guests that I'd booked, and behind it would be every every guest had a little piece of background material. It might be two or three pages, you know, or, yeah, so that he could research or have a look and see. And uh, most times, that was never touched. Yeah. He never needed the background. He went on natural curiosity and uh, whatever he'd learned along the way. And that was what I think was, again, one of his great talents. That Nothing sounded scripted. It just sounded like... Uh... I'm here, I'm having a good time, and why don't you join me? And it was, whether it was Lee Iacocca or the mayor of the city of Detroit or a truck driver, you know, they were all treated the same way, and they all had an interesting story because JP made it interesting. Yeah, he had, um, you know, and he, and he was sassy too, you know. Oh, no, uh, I, he was... I, I you, you've <laughs> said that three times now. I'm getting, I'm going to get to the sassy part. Okay. <laughs> the, the other question uh, I want to know is, how big was that Rolodex? It was two, when I got there, it was two black books of phone numbers. And remember, when uh, we didn't have internet, we didn't have mobile phones. Yeah. So we had these two books, and they were tattered and torn. And, you know, you'd go to, to the H page, and it would say Woody. <laughs> be a phone number. And, uh, yeah, we didn't even have area codes, I think, for some of them. But, uh, but it was not uh, any kind of technology. It was old, old school. And those books would go in a drawer every day and locked up because they had everybody's phone number in it. And, uh, and even, you know, the books were magic because when you needed to find someone, there was surely someone in that book who would be connected to that someone. Like one morning he wanted very badly Chuck Yeager. Uh, who broke the sound barrier and and uh it was his birthday or something like that so he says get me jaeger that's all he said so, okay so i'm like how in the hell am i going to get chuck jaeger i started thinking and every eight minutes or so he would say you got jaeger yet <laughs> i'm getting i'm working on it i'm getting closer you got jaeger yet no no pretty soon pretty soon you know 
finally, I thought I, I found an ad executive who knew somebody who made a commercial with him who happened to have his phone number. And, you know, you're calling and waking people up and waking their wives up and everything mm-hmm. else. And so finally, I managed to get Chuck Yeager, who was in California. So he was three hours behind us. And uh, he says, I'll talk to JP if I don't have to wait on hold too long. I said, okay, going. And I typed on the screen the teleprompter for JP and it said, line two, Chuck Yeager. And he looked up at me and he said, you mean you got Chuck Yeager? <laughs> <laughs> you son of a gun. You made it seem like I should have had him 20 minutes ago and you're surprised I got him. So we had fun moments like that. But, you know, I, he even had a football reference one time because shortly after I started working for him and, and I know like when you were in Saginaw, you worked every hour that God sent probably. Yep. And, and so did I. And, and he says to me, calls me at three o'clock in the afternoon. And he says, what are you still doing there? And I said, well, I'm working I'm mean, on the program. He says, go home. You're going to burn yourself out. And he says, and by the way, whatever goes on in, in that studio between six till 10, we leave it there behind us. And then we come out and we have some fun. So, you know, don't ever worry about it. And so it, it was, uh, you know, it could be intense at times, but he made the point to say that, you know, don't worry about it. That's what will happen in there. And, and he backed it up because every couple of weeks we'd go, he'd say, come on, we'll have a breakfast beer. And we'd go down to the Pegasus, which was in the, bay, in the main floor of the Fisher building, and have a Heineken or a Budweiser. And uh, after we loosen up a little bit, I'd say, you know what you said to me last week? <laughs> he'd say, tell me. What did I say? What did I say? I said, you told me to get a song by the four freshmen, but that I should bring you all the library cards from the record library because whatever I picked, it would be wrong. <laughs> he would laugh. He'd say, yeah, you must have thought I was a real bastard, didn't yeah. you? <laughs> I tell you, he, he had a little Bo Schembechler in him, as you say, a little sassiness <laughs> in him. You know, the one thing about waking people up, I got to laugh at this. And I know that you probably had seen it when I would get up in the morning and I'm, like I said, working 24 hours or whatever. And I would get up and the Tigers would have been playing on the West coast, either Mm -hmm. the angels or the Oakland days. And at, at six or seven in the morning, Sparky Anderson is on the radio and Sparky sounded (laughs) like he had a, uh, broomstick down his throat i mean did did you guys ever let because you knew it was like 4 35 o'clock in the morning he had just gotten done with a night game that ended at midnight their time did you guys ever chuckle uh, about some of those interviews with sparky well i i hated calling and waking people up but that was the deal and so that's what i had to do so i was i was always apologizing i said sorry to wake you up but uh, Sparky Anderson would never hear of it. You know, he, he always went out of his way to make you feel okay. Say, no problem, no problem. And, you know, we in spring training, it would be funny. You know, like, again, this is before mobile phones. So you'd call the Holiday Inn West, I think it was called, in Lakeland. Yeah, I stayed there. Yeah, I stayed Did there you? when we, yeah, when we covered the Tigers, we got rooms there when I was back working at Channel 4. Yeah, okay, so you, you get the front desk, say, could I have the Green Tree restaurant, please? And they got stand by, and, yeah, and then you get the, someone would answer at the waitress stand. Can you get uh, Swarky Anderson to the phone? And that's how it was at the time, but he never he never made you feel bad about it. He was exceedingly kind, and um, and he said that, that Joe was the best interview of anybody who had ever interviewed him, and that was a nice compliment. Yeah, his morning voice, though, was a little rough. Uh, yeah, it's Swarky <laughs> 
Yeah, Joe. Uh, we just didn't get. We just didn't get the hits when we needed them. You know. <laughs> I, yeah, you I, called them Giuseppe. Yeah, hey, Giuseppe. I, yeah. I, I. The other thing is, I want to ask you. Um, was that, and I don't know whether I'm taking this out of context, but was that era with Joe P, Jay and JP and, and, and Dick Purton and all that, was that, would you consider that kind of the golden age, a little bit of radio and when radio was just dominant with the newspapers and the television day, I mean, it was a great media circus to be in, in, uh, in that period of time in that era. Do you believe that Mike? Uh, I thank God I was around in that era. Now, now, I miss the era, and you did too, when there would be an orchestra in that studio. Uh, live that music. That must have been pretty cool. Well, didn't, didn't Mark Avery later on the day have afternoon music hall? Didn't he have a live uh, orchestra in there or a live combo? Yeah, from, t- yeah he, he, from time to time. But we were on it. This was the back edge of it, really. Yeah. And, um, to, to, uh, so I missed that. And I'm sure if you look back, I think about that was really magical and cool, too. But, um, but yeah, the, these... Uh, you know, we, you didn't have a mobile phone to check your news before you got out of bed, so you had to go to the radio. Maybe your paper was on the porch, uh, and but the radio brought it to life because you know he had five newspapers in front of him: the news, the, the news, and the Free Press, and the USA Today, and I think we had Wall Street Journal and New York Times. And uh, so we would call the people who were in those stories, and it just and it brought it to life. And, you know, when you think about, like, Bill Bonds and J.P. McCarthy racing the two Bablo boats down the Detroit River to raise money for charity, do you need anything more colorful than that no. to talk about in a town, you know, in a town that's, you know, across the river from Canada? It was, it was magic. You and that's, right about that. And that's what I mean about it being a golden era, that kind of thing. Again, never happened today. Don't have two personalities big enough, I think, to pull it off, to be quite frank. And it, and to your point, if you were going to have a show where you said, hey, I'm going to fly an airplane and I'm going to tell everybody to look out the window to the right and, uh, you know, we're going over Denver and uh, we just passed Mount Rushmore. They'd say, what do you mean? Shouldn't you be on the air screaming about right wing politics? <laughs> uh, you know, I, mean, I want to be creative. I don't want to I don't want to just blast away at people and right. pour poison in their ear all day. I always thought Mike uh, Mike Worf was one of the most talented people on radio that I have ever known uh he created uh, what i would call radio dramas in an hour uh when he did stories and documentaries and i thought jay roberts did the same thing with night flight he suspended reality and took you to another spot and uh you were you were delighted to go with him yeah wasn't that something that was real um super creativity i hope we haven't lost it entirely but uh i I don't think we have entirely but it's you know what it's not featured as much as it probably should be yeah, yeah, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that's true. But I mean, we try to put some pluck into what we do and try to make sure that uh, you get a little music and you get some sound and you get some production along with the radio. Because as you know, when you used to go to WJR or any any big station, you went in a newsroom and there were lots of people working. And now you walk into a, a radio station and there's nobody there. There are cubes, and uh, you know. They're doing it on a skeleton crew compared to what we used to do. Absolutely, yeah. You had newsrooms. I mean, back in the day, WGR's newsroom was as vital and as busy as a television newsroom and producing 15-minute newscasts every every hour. I mean, that that took time, it took talent, it took money, and it took a commitment to that uh, to the news. And, and WJR and everybody around town did that. Mm-hmm. 
And that's was not that you who coined the, case. the phrase uh, when you're calling a football game and you say uh, Wolverines are moving uh, left to right across your radio dial? Is that you? Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of guys have done that before me. That's something I borrowed a little yeah. bit. My idea is when I do that, it, it goes back to my thought of WJR. You've got to create a picture in the listener's mm-hmm. mind of, of what's going on, whether you are like Jay Roberts and put them in a seat in an airplane and you take off from Metro to go to wherever. In my opinion is if you've been to Michigan stadium and a player runs down right in front of the Michigan bench, you can see that right in front of the Michigan bench, or he's going into the South end zone where the flagpole is. You, you know that. So you have a picture of that in your mind and that's what radio gives you the opportunity to do. So I try to do those descriptive things moving right to left. And if they know where I'm sitting, they can kind of visualize that that offense is going, you know, from right to left, heading to the north end zone at Michigan Stadium. So it helps, I think, draw the picture for them, put the game in their mind, take them from the radio to a seat in the stadium. That's what my job is all about. Like a penguin with a hot herring in its cummerbund. <laughs> and his dauber is way up as he scores for the Wolverines. God bless his cotton pick and maize and blue heart. Hey, one yeah, last thing. It is, yeah, one last thing about Joe. You wrote a book. Uh, and, and let's get to the sassy side, I guess, now. And the, the title of the book about Joe is Just Don't Tell Him Where I'm At or Where I Am. Uh, yeah. That and that was true about JP. Uh, there were times when he was places before he did that radio show. You said, "How did he do it?" <laughs> well, I'm looking at the book right now. In fact, and uh, that was uh, written, unfortunately, posthumously. Uh, yeah. When I got together a lot of his friends, and the the really cool thing about that is that uh, went to number one. And I'm going to walk over there right now because it's in a little frame. And I used to get up in the morning on Sundays when the Detroit Free Press would want, would run the uh, the, the rankings. And because we didn't have internet, I'd go down to the Barnes and Noble or whoever was selling the newspaper, and I'd go and see how, how's it doing. And it went from number five to number three, and eventually it went to number one. And I thought, God, we got to make JP number one again. And it was so satisfying. And when I look at the list right now. J.P. McCarthy, Just Don't Tell Him Where I Am, was number one. This is 1997. Uh-huh. Number two was Tuesdays with Maury, Mitch Album. Number three was Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Wow. Angela's Ashes was number four. And uh, The Dark Side of Camelot by Seymour Hersh, and a known journalist, was number five. And so J.P. McCarthy topped those fine pieces of literature one more time and it was very satisfying and you know that's what he used to say when he'd have a guest on phone he'd say well mention my name in albuquerque just don't just tell, don't him, where tell I am. him where i am yep that was joe <laughs> um we know where he is now yeah we do and uh the other thing you've done michael we talk about great personalities you've you've been friends and made friends with a lot of different people and one of them was a former president george hw bush uh, how did that all come about? Uh, because you've been at his golf tournament before. Uh, I know that, uh, you have known his, his family and, and his wife and been in Kenny Bunkport before. Talk to me how that relationship yeah. developed for you. Well, it's funny. It's, it tra- traces back to JP McCarthy. Um, when I was young and I heard that vice president Bush was coming to wind up for the biggest 4th of July parade, uh, every year in Michigan. So I thought I'd go down there and get a look at it. And I saw the pres- vice president, Mrs. Bush, coming up. 
And I said, wow, that looks pretty cool. And I'd like to be involved in that. So I uh, volunteered as a campaign volunteer. And believe it or not, at that young age, they uh, I thought I'd be painting signs or something, you know. And, and uh, they let me drive a van in the motorcade when the president would come into campaign at, from Metro Airport to Southfield or downtown Detroit or whatever. And so there'd be the limousine and the spare limousine. And then the, there's a gunship and a media car, and then a bunch of vans with staff people in it. So I would drive these vans, and they would, there would be Lee Atwater or James Baker III, and, you know, they figure there's a 20-year-old kid driving the van. They just, they talked strategy, or they talked whatever they talked about. And I'm all ears, man. You know, listening <laughs> up there. And so eventually, when I was working for J.P. McCarthy, you might remember there was a man called Heinz Prechter who had oh, yeah. invented the sunroof. Yeah. And I, uh, I, I knew the people that were on Joe's show were obviously very important. And I don't know what gave me, once again, the temerity to do this, but I said, I'm going to ask them for advice. And so I picked out 10 people and I wrote them letters and I said, would you mind if I had asked you for advice? And all of them, of course, because of Joe's juice, said, come on to the office or come on in and ask. And so I went into like Tony Franco and Keith Crane and uh, Heinz Prechter was a hoot McInerney was another one. And I would just say, uh, I'm 26 years old. I'm in this really cool position. What should I be thinking? That's all I asked them. The answers were quite varied, but Heinz Prechter uh, actually took me to lunch. And I, I know as I look back now, I'm like, he must have been bored out of his mind with a 26-year-old kid across from him. <laughs> this is this, I this is like uh, Peter Pan stuff. This is so good. I love this, <laughs> Michael. I, I wish I could have been a fly on your shoulder to just go through these experiences with you at a, such a young age. I don't know what I was. I don't know what possessed me to do it, but um, well, God was smiling yeah. on you, man. Yeah, and and so anyway, a couple months later, Heinz Prechter called me and or his secretary called and said, he'd like you to come to lunch. I go to his hotel that he owned down river and it was president Bush was there. And, uh, he remembered that I was a fan. And so I got to meet the president. And then years later, um, I saw that they had a charity golf tournament in Kenny Bunkport. And so I just, once again, picked up the phone. I said, how would you mind a live broadcast from, from the event? And the organizers said, sure, we'd love it. So I, went there and I did the tournament, you know, did the broadcast and, and, but basically what I did is I, I didn't ask for anything. I just gave and I would bring celebrities if I get them or I could bring donors or, and sooner or later they, for whatever reason, took a shine to me. And, uh, it was, it was really uh, flattering and, and, but you got to put the time in and you got to be willing to give and not ask for anything. And, so then, you know, the golf professional there, Ken Rayner, uh, I kept, he kept telling stories just like I'm telling to you or you tell to me. And I said, well, did you ever consider a book? And that took me about five years because he was kind of hesitant to write about his friendship with the president. He was a golf pro and he'd been to Camp David, all that sort of thing. And eventually, Jim Nance actually helped me convince him because Jim was friends with the president. And, and then we, you know, when Ken asked the president if he minded if we did it, he didn't mind at all. So um, we wrote this very nice book that's no politics. It's called uh, I Call Him Mr. President, Stories of Golf, Fishing, and Life with my friend George Herbert Walker Bush. And uh, it's, it's all about what it's like to travel and be with the president and play golf with him. And it's 
also has a bunch of celebrity excerpts that I got from people who are, are just like me, who were, you know, slack jawed and, and goo goo eyed at going to Kenny Bunkport there to his house or his golf course. And, and, um, to think that when that book launched a couple of years ago, we had a book launch party at a small theater in Kenny Bunkport and the president and Mrs. Bush were in the fourth row <laughs> while <laughs> Ken and I are on stage because they would never sit in the front row. They don't, they're not those kind of people. And to think uh, I come, come a long way from the wind up 4th of July parade to be presenting something on stage in front of president Bush. Pretty, was, pretty amazing. Quite a moment. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Yeah, indeed. That was the other thing. But the lessons are all there. Yeah, they are. To keep giving. Invite yourself to the party. That's, that's, you know how to segue, don't you? <laughs> You're, you've done this before. Cause I was going to go to your, your career as a writer. Uh, and, and golf is in there very big. You mentioned Jim Nance, how, the yeah. great CBS announcer. By the way, thank you very much. I don't know whether Jim Nance knew me from Adam, but he was very kind on, on your show. <laughs> Uh, I don't know whether you wrote the script for him uh, when I was let go by WJR on the Lions broadcast. Jim Nance, I, you sent me a excerpt of that, and I'm going, holy cow, I didn't know Jim Nance knew who I was. That was a special. <laughs> that was special. He lit right up at the sound of your name, didn't he? And why wouldn't he? You were there for decades. I was, I, but you know, we, we'd not ever really run into each other a lot. I had said hello in passing huh. and we were both working, you know, how that is when you're working a game yeah. and you're running yeah. here and you're trying to get information there. But, uh, that was very impressive. How did you get to know Jim? I got to know Jim, believe it or not, right back to JP McCarthy, because we had Ben Wright as uh, our golf analyst, yep. uh, sponsored by Jacobson's at the time. And so from the major championships, I would have to wake up Ben which, you know, if you know the kind of party your Ben was with the CBS crew, that was really a rough wake-up call, <laughs> <laughs> and especially at Augusta National, or, or God forbid it be at Pebble Beach. But uh, while Ben was on hold, he would be telling me these stories, and so eventually I did the same thing, and I said, you know, would you ever consider uh, writing a book? And and uh, it took a little convincing. I went down to visit him, and, and uh, he said, people have always said that. No one's ever done anything about it. I said, well, I'd like to do something about it. And so we wrote Good Bounces and Bad Lies, which was essentially me uh, interviewing. I interviewed him for 50 hours and uh, turned it into a book and interviewed friends of his like Pat Summerall and Jim Nance. And so that's how I met Nance at Augusta National. And I, once again, for whatever reason, he took a shine to me. And, uh, you know, and then I'd say it's about giving. Again, I've never asked Jim Nance for anything. And I have tried to find ways to, to give to him. And one of those ways was uh, when I uh, arranged for him to be the uh, MC of the uh, Thanksgiving Day Parade when he's coming in for the Lions game and he got to take his kids and family with Tony Michaels and do that. And, and Jim, you know, as big as a star as he is, when, when I suggested it, he said, you don't think they'd let me do that, do you? <laughs> hey. I know, yeah, I and, and Michael, I know for a fact that he really enjoyed that. And I think that if they have a picture of him, uh, you know, running down Woodward Avenue in that float, uh, the smile on Jim Nance's face is from ear to ear. I, I think he truly did enjoy that. Yeah, he sure did. So, 
So it was through Ben Wright, and uh, that book is really a fun one too, and because it's an inside look at network golf and the golf world, and and and, and in fact, uh, I see Ben about four times a year still. Do you? And I, I I also know that Ben Wright had, other than Henry Longhurst, the best golf voice in all of golf because he's got that British thing, and it's an understated. Uh, kind of way he approaches good shots and bad shots. And Ben ran into some trouble a little bit. Did you guys go into that in the book about Ben Wright? In the 50 plus hours of interviews we did. Uh, and by the way, if you want an inside look at that, you know, when I, I basically lived with him uh, when we did this and the first day we recorded all afternoon and I was transcribing in the bedroom that he let me stay in. And he came to the door about five o'clock and he said, do you want something to drink? And I said, Oh, thanks. No, I'm okay. He says, no, no, no. Do you want something to drink? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that kind of, and I looked at happy hour, of course. So we would then enjoy, uh, typically red wine by that stage in his life. Cause he'd been to Betty Ford and, and given up vodka. But once we'd had a, a bottle of wine or so, the stories got better. And I said, sure. get taping in the afternoon. We'll just tape in the evening. And it was way better when the tongue was loosened up a little bit. But I, I didn't ask him about the uh, CBS uh, political incorrectness uh, firing until the very end of going through his rich life of being with Ben Hogan and Jack Nicholas and, and you know, uh, Princess Mon uh, Monaco, Princess Grace. And, and he was grateful in the end because he said, you know, by the time you asked me about that sore subject, I got perspective in that that's just a small, tiny thing of a very lucky life that I've had. And that made me feel real good that, you know, really nice that he, he got that kind of perspective. I, I, I am glad, I'm glad too. Cause when it happened, he was a bit bitter as I recall. Yes. And that is before he went to Betty Ford and, and um, you know, I, I think he felt betrayed by the journalism community and, uh, you know, uh, and to speak to that point, they called him at night. He gave him candid answer and uh, they ran with it. And and it, it, I think, you know, in these days, it wouldn't have been so bad, but it was a bad way to conclude a career. Now, he did some work after that, enough, including this book, to redeem himself and to feel better about it all. But, you know, that Churchillian voice of his, I, I was best man at his um most recent wedding, which was now 15, 16 years ago. And, and I remember uh, I'm driving him to the church. We're in our tuxedos. And I said, are you nervous? <laughs> and he said, nervous. I've done this four times before. It's not the weddings that make me nervous. It's the divorces. <laughs> so, I tell you, that's pretty good, Ben, right? You did right there, Michael. <laughs> Very well done. Very well done. Um, Thank you. I think he's a, I, I, again, I think his career, his body of work uh, speaks for itself. The one little hiccup is, is what many people remember him for. But I'll tell you, if you go back and listen to some of those broadcasts that he did, he is a, he's a delight to listen to. And he, he puts the game in an English perspective uh, that I think added a little bit of a, a spice, a little sassiness, if you will to yeah. what in some ways American golf broadcasters so quiet and so, you know, stilted. This was, uh, this was a little bit of a curveball that I think golf broadcast needed. I think that's, I think yeah. he paved the way personally. I think he paved the way for the guys like, uh, Gary McCord and David Faraday. 
Yeah, and Gary McCord was his foil, as you recall. I sure and, do. Uh, so Gary was the empty-headed Californian, and Ben was the stiff British, uh, you know, uh, tough, and uh, and they went at each other. And so they remembered that what you said earlier, it's, it's entertainment, it's yep. sports, but it also has to be entertainment. And to just sit there and say, nice shot, this one breaks to the left, it's not good enough. And Ben was a journalist, so he knew how to paint the <laughs> paint the pictures and oh, he knew uh, when to also stay quiet too yeah he did well i, I used to love when when ben Wright someone would hit a, a poor shot and, and ben mm-hmm. ben wright would just go oh dear <laughs> <laughs> and, you could see it for yourself exactly you didn't need to you, you didn't need to him to have described it he you know it, it hit on the green and bounce over back into the heavy ref and he go oh dear you, he <laughs> won't he like that writer. he won't like that one <laughs> aquatic doom was another one uh, yeah, yeah, exactly <laughs> exactly hey the other thing about you michael that people may not know and I, again i find what you've done with your life and everything and i'll get to the when we finish i'm going to get to the show michigan's big show uh, that you uh, host every morning around the state of michigan but what when did the travel bug bite you that you've run with the bulls in pamplona haven't you I sure did. That was what wow, that's were you thinking? Really love to talk about. <laughs> I was going to say no, but I, mean, I just that's like the, the, there's so many more things that you've done, but that one's like you want to say to somebody when they do that, what are you thinking? That that is the pinnacle, and I, I for every every year I would see it on television, talk about it on the radio, and it was like such madcap fun. And I finally was I was getting close to fifty, and I said, why don't you just go do it? And I did. And, um, and I remember, uh, you know, I went the day before with a company called uh, Made for Spain and Portugal, and they gave me a coach. And the coach, uh, who, who, you know, we met in the cobblestone streets the day before, and he says, okay, I want you to stand here. And at eight o'clock in the morning, you're going to hear a cannon go off. And he says, that means they've opened the gates. And then and a little bit later, you're going to hear another rocket go off. That means all the bulls are out. And there's six of them. And when you go there in the newspaper, they published the day before which six bulls from what ranch are going to be coming out, like a, like a, a program. And I got the Sabata bulls, which I've known for the most gorings and killings of any. And I said, well, if we're going to do this, we might as well do it. And I could see their pictures in the paper, you know, 2,000-pound bull uh, coming up. So uh, the coach told me, Stand here. Don't move until X and run this way. And, you know, and he's giving me, and he says, you have to look me in the eye and tell me if I'm going to teach you this. You have to agree. And you know that you might lose your life doing this. Holy and cow. Said, yeah. Didn't that and give said, you a uh, second thoughts? Well, <laughs> no, I, cause I'd come all that way. And I said, all right, I understand. That. He said, do you ever run? He said, well, I used to, but not anymore. And I said, why not? And he said, well, once I had children, I, I decided that it wasn't, you know, responsible. Uh-huh. My son's standing right next to me listening to this, Harrison. Yeah. And uh, so we go through the day, and we're sitting there at night at dinner, and he looks at me and he says, Dad, I don't think you should do it. <laughs> Smart I lad. Said, I said, well, we, we've come all this way. And I said, you know, we're, we're talking about there'd be like 900 runners and me and you know the odds are he says dad you think the odds are with you he says let's take a look at this you're not fast you're 50 years old you've never done it before 
uh, I'd say if there's a risk pool, you're in it. And uh, I said, that's a University of Michigan education, right? <laughs> Absolutely. There's a smart, as I said, there's a smart lad right there. Yeah. So that would be, uh, you know, you get there at seven in the morning and they steal off the streets and you wait for an hour. And that's the first time in my life that I ever had to set a wake up alarm in order to get up and drink. Because I needed to be a little bit, you know, like like most of the people in Pamplona stay up all night, party, yeah, and then li- do it. They call it liquid courage, yeah. Yeah, so I had to do that in the morning, but but I, I was glad when the Bulls went by, I'll tell you that. But I bet you boy, were. What, a, what an adrenaline rush. I mean, you played the Rose Bowl, you played for Bo, you know what it's like when you, when you have an adrenaline rush, and, yep. and that was one. I imagine it was. Um, you've traveled all over the world. Uh, real quickly, in a minute or two. Favorite spots mm-hmm. that you've traveled to and written about? Uh, Monaco is pretty cool. I got to meet uh, Prince Albert there and gamble in that casino that 007 uh, gambled in and all the movies. I think that's a pretty cool spot. Ireland, I've been more than 30 times because it's a place you can really let your hair down and just go where Ireland takes you. But about you Ireland, relax. yeah, about Ireland, isn't it? To me, it's the people that make that such a magical place. Oh, that's why you shouldn't have an itinerary because you might find yourself in a pub with a peat fire going and you get in some conversation and uh, you just got to go with it. And uh, so I, I definitely love Ireland. Italy's been on my radar lately. And uh, Venice, I, I've thought about every day since I've been there. Um, and um, so those are the ones that come to mind. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always wondering where I'm going to go next. And then I always love to hear travel stories from people. So what about you? And you can't say Pasadena. No, I, I will tell you this, that uh, Robbie and I uh, have, we've done Europe and we've done Rhine River cruises. We've done the Caribbean. We've done the cruises. We've done a lot of travel. And uh, of late, what we've decided to do and get in the car. A couple of springs ago, we got in the car, we drove to the UP, we turned left, and we didn't stop till we got to Yellowstone Park. Wow. And, and, and we just took our time. You know, through through Duluth, Minnesota, at the Great Lakes uh, uh, Freshwater uh, mu- uh, Aquarium, uh, Bemidji, Minnesota, uh, <laughs> Medora, North Dakota, at the uh, entrance to Teddy Roosevelt State Park, uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, uh, Cody, Wyoming, little towns, little places. Stopped at, you know, didn't stop at at the Ritz or, or any of the the, the Hyatts. Uh, mm-hmm. Stopped at the Rough Rider Inn in Medora. Uh, and, and it, it, that to me was, we have done a little bit more of that driving big. We just took one up to the UP and went to Munising and picture rock and great, uh, the great Lake shipwreck museum at whitefish point. Um, oh, you got to, you got there. Huh? Yes, I did. I, I had to, I mean, it was one of those things that, uh, in the state of Michigan, we have so much. And, and so Robbie and I, those are, those are the kind of travel things we've been doing of late. Uh, and, and we found that. It's really much more personal <laughs> uh, because yeah. because you're driving. And, and if you see something along the side of the road, I mean, I remember we stopped somewhere. In, I forget. It was Iowa. They had a, a sour cream raisin pie at mom's pie shop. <laughs> I said, I got to stop and have a piece of that. And it, and it was great. Michael had my picture taken. And uh, somewhere in North Dakota, underneath a 50-foot concrete dairy cow. 
<laughs> named Salem Sioux. So that's kind of what we've we've done from our travel. But your travel is fabulous. It's great to read where you've been. Now, here's the other question, one of your interests that I did not know about. The cigar. The travel? No, the cigars. Oh. You're a cigar guy. You've written for uh, Cigar Aficionado, haven't you? Yes, I have. And when, I got, did, uh, when did that start? Oh, I don't know. You know, when the craze came on, I guess I became interested. But the probably the pinnacle of it was I got to go to Havana. And uh, everybody knows about the Cuban cigars being so um, fantastic and all that sort of thing. And being in Havana was a treat, too, because you, you really weren't supposed to be there at the time as an American. But uh-huh. you got some kind of special experience. Uh, some sort of special exemption of some sort, one another. But I remember walking through the streets and imagining Godfather Two, you know, you know, yeah. Fredo, <laughs> it's the only way out. Fredo, come with me. <laughs> so it, 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 it's magic, and uh, you learn so much. And and I do remember also there was a there was a tour guide there who had taken me around for five days in the small group I was with, and I said you'd probably like to go to America, wouldn't you? And he said I can visit America. And I said, you can? And he says, yeah, they'll, they'll, I can take a week off and go to America. And he says, but when I come back, I won't have this job. Mm. He said, I'll have a different job. He says, it won't be anything like this job because it's taken me many years to work up to getting this kind of job. So it was a, it was a reality check uh, while, you know, with the government there and whatnot. An eye opener. Yeah. No question about that. Ears, if you keep your ears open, you learn a lot, don't you? Absolutely. For, for a talk show host and a football announcer. Hey, listening is the most important thing a talk show host can do. Hmm. Learning how to listen. Yeah. Sometimes I literally, when I'm hosting that morning show, I put my hand physically over my mouth. Uh, because the silence happened uh, recently with Joel Ferguson. He, he was answering a question, and I put my hand over my mouth. He can't see me because he's on the phone. And I knew, stay silent, because he'll probably tell you more. And that awkward silence that comes gets filled by somebody, like a duel. Who's going to do it? And if you can, if you wait long enough, they usually jump in and tell you the thing you really want to know. Do you know who does that a lot? Police investigators. Oh, really? When they are interviewing suspects, they will talk to someone, and then they just won't talk. And the suspect wants to say something more, and usually that's when they find themselves getting into trouble, and they make the misstatement, where then the investigator can say, wait a minute, a minute ago you said, and that's when they start to uh, start to trip up, if you will. Uh, it's a great technique. I, 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 I've, I've, police investigators use that quite a bit. They just don't talk, and, and, the, and whoever they're talking to will continue on. That's a great technique. Good job, Michael. Well, I, I love to go and I still go listen to the likes of Larry King and Dick Purton because you can find all that stuff like you can find Jay Roberts on Night Flight too. And, and I remind myself, okay, short questions are the best because I hear talk show hosts and these are people you know who answer the question before they're done asking the question and there's no time left. So you get like a Larry King who will say something when he'll have a, you know, a football coach on. They'll say, football, why? Yeah. And, that, and that's it. No, I agree with or, you. I, yeah, when, when I listen to my podcast back, I, I try to learn and think about, hey, make them quick. They're the ones that you're talking to, not you. And that's kind of how brave I do to it. You're listen to your own stuff. <laughs> well, I, 
I, I, it's, it's an old thing from Bo. It's like you, you got to get better. You don't stay the same. You either get worse or you get better. And if you don't try to improve everything that you do at every point, then you're going to get wallowed up. And I try to listen to things and see how can I make that better? Uh, and, and, and it's just, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, when you're 17 and he beats it into you for four years, it stays with you through all those years. Because <laughs> hey. supposedly Ernie Harwell never liked to listen to his own uh, broadcast. He was afraid that he would lose his uh, confidence. Uh, I always felt that it you, you could get, I don't necessarily like to, but I think you can get more information from it. There was a mm-hmm. period of time, for instance, when I was doing broadcasting i was working with frank and we were doing play-by-play he was doing play-by-play i was doing color and frank would say something and i would say exactly i must have said exactly 55 times during a broadcast it was it was awful and 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 i just said man what are you doing and literally the next week i i found myself saying igs and i would change i would stop Mm -hmm. and, and and try to work some of the i consciously in my mind would pause when I was going to say something that second, second and a half and formulate something other than exactly to say. Mm, and it became, it, yeah, exactly. It, it, see, I did it just now. Isn't that stupid? <laughs> Isn't that the dumbest thing, Michael? But Well, that is, I guess, like football, right? If you were on the line and you had a little tell that this was going to be a pass play or a run play, Yep. You'd have to spot that and say, hey, don't put your hand like that because then you know they know it's a drop back. No, you have that. And that's where I think you learn from your mistakes a little bit. And since I've been broadcasting, now I've gotten that one taken care of. But there's always little things that you can fix. So that's, that's what I try to do. Anyway, I want to thank you for being with us. But first thing I want to do is say, you're still working hard and doing your radio thing. Michigan's Big Show. How has that been for you? To, to be the broadcaster, you've had JP in your background. You've had all of this. You've had travel. You've had authors. You've had great personalities in your life. And, and here you are in Michigan with a syndicated morning drive talk show out of the state capital. Uh, how has that worked for you? Well, it, I never expected to be a host, but when I think about it, I have now worked for um, as a producer for five guys in the National Radio Hall of Fame. And, uh, so I spent some time training and, uh, what a treat that was. That would have been a heck of a career just to do that. And, um, so I kind of feel like where we started with this chat today is that uh, a steward I am of the radio legacy of Michigan and Detroit. And so those voices are frequently heard on my program. Every single hour I have the clip of JP saying, good morning world. Before I start, I have a little bit of Paul Carey saying, you know, Michael Patrick Shield is <laughs> on the air and it all takes me back. And it reminds me every hour you would have, you know, uh, you would have swam across Lake Michigan to get a radio job. So I don't ever want to hear you complaining that you got to get up at four in the morning, you know, or it's hard work or whatever it might be because you wanted this so badly and, and you got it and you honor those guys that taught you all that. And, and so that's kind of how I honestly feel about it. I'm, I'm ripping everybody's act off as best I can and seems to be holding together. Michael, we are very lucky people to be in this business and to have survived and still work in it. And uh, many times you make your own luck, and you have made your own luck throughout these years. And I can't thank you enough, and I wish you continued success. That is very sweet of you. This is quite an hour for me to you know. I'm usually the question asker, so it was very 
very fun, and I look forward to seeing you. And go blue, and please give my best to Robbie, and mention my name and Omer. Just don't tell him where I am. Amen, brother. <laughs> Michael can be heard mornings across the state of Michigan on the syndicated radio show, Michigan's Big Show, with Michael Patrick Shields. It was great talking with him, and if you want to know a guy who is up for pretty much anything, Michael is that guy. He's also unafraid to ask. His book, Invite Yourself to the Party, is an example of how he gets it done. His books are available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Keep an eye on my Facebook page, Jim Brandstatter 76 and my Twitter account, at Jim Brandstatter, for more information on upcoming episodes of Conversations With. You can also find them on all of your favorite podcast platforms. You can also go to thebrandyshow.com or jimbrandstatter.com and navigate your way to Season 1 and Season 2 episodes of Conversations With.